PowerPoint from the lecture last time, but not an audio recording. Of, she forgot to put on her computer to record. Um, maybe I can get a lecture up for you on chapter seven. But today we'll deal with chapter eight, uh, the structure of the legal system in the United Kingdom. A week from today, we'll be dealing with the distinction between solicitors and barristers, which is a major difference in the United States. The legal education, where you read law as an undergraduate, although law schools have emerged. Uh, and since this book was published, now England has a Supreme Court. And the new building should be opening up this year. I don't know exactly what month. Uh, and I think you know this website here, the official website, judiciary.gov.uk, can give you a pretty good idea of how the English system works and what the significance of the new Supreme Court is. Um, well, I won't deal with this website for the time being. Let's go right to the structure of the, of the country and its legal system. Uh, I'm just trying to get this. No. OK, so we, we already have discussed the fact that England has a parliamentary system. Uh, the parliamentary system is similar to uh, the system used in the continent of Europe. That means that the cabinet is formed by the parliamentary majority. Because England has an electoral system of first past the post, that means a plurality, not a majority. It has two or a two and a half party system. England's an election campaign right now. The election campaigns are very brief, about five weeks in duration. And uh, this uh, electoral campaign uh, has three parties in it, the Liberal Party, along with the two major parties, the Conservatives and Labor. Labor has been in power for a long time and is very likely to lose to the Conservatives. Conservatives ruled for a very long time. In fact, Margaret Thatcher was the longest serving prime minister in, British, in English history. And uh, she actually was thrown out in a coup, as it were, by John Major in 1990, late 1990. Uh, November, I believe, uh, when there was dispute and division within her party about her opposition to uh, cooperating with European integration, incorporating the European Court of Human Rights uh, into the country's constitution, and uh, joining the Euro a decision, which was eventually was rejected. Uh, I think you should pay attention to this election campaign, because there are many issues that come up in England in, as, as an issue in ways that are similar and different uh, to the United States. And I'd like to just take a brief aside from something that's not in the reading, but I think you know would be very interesting for you to follow in the next month in this very interesting and significant election. First of all, crime is a big issue. And the courts more generally are big issues. Two of the biggest legal issues in Britain are the issue of bribery, uh, obviously, the issue of uh, tort reform, which we have in the United States, they have a different name for it, uh, is a big issue. Uh, and privacy is a big issue. On the criminal side, of course, the, the prison population, which has exploded under the labor government, is a huge issue, just as the prison population and size has exploded in numbers 
in the United States. And let me give you a, a brief review of some of these issues in dispute. Uh, on the bribery issue, for example, uh, the Labor government, and because it has a majority in Parliament, is able to insist on getting uh, its way through. And if it loses a vote, then it must call an election because the, it's not a coalition cabinet with a multi-party system as happens in the continent of Europe with proportional representation as, ele as its electoral system. So uh, it, when we say uh, Parliament has enacted legislation, and because Parliament has uh, a one-party majority, it means it was the Labor Party government's legislation. Uh, and that legislation introduced a couple of key reforms. On the bribery issue now, what they have is a system where uh, if they catch you giving bribes, especially to, for overseas businesses, which Britain, like the United States, has uh, ratified an international convention of the OECD. We have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States that was introduced by Jimmy Carter. Similar statutes were introduced more recently under the Labor government. And if they catch you on bribery, they give the, the corporations a chance to come clean in re return for having a much lower charge. And they don't even get prosecuted for bribery. They essentially admit to the bribes once it's clear they've been doing so. So that's a very big issue because the conservatives you know, don't like the idea on the one hand of allowing essentially plea bargaining, which is a practice that was never allowed in England, which we've had in the United States, which is considered very controversial, and which has just been introduced and expanding in Britain. And the conservatives don't like it because they basically say, you know, a lot of bribery, you can't really avoid it. Otherwise, you can't do business in these countries. And some bribery is even efficient. For example, if you're trying to unload your goods off the docks, and they tell you it'll take two months to unload the goods, and all of it will spoil if it's fresh produce. You know, but if you, pay 50, if you leave $50 on the desk, you find that your stuff gets unloaded. Conservatives feel like, well, what choice does a business person have if they're doing business overseas? Labor says it's illegal. The only way we're going to clean it up is if we clean it up all around the world. Labor introduced this plea bargaining in other areas in the criminal law, like we have, where the prosecutor can recommend a lower sentence. Uh, it's clear that the lower sentences uh, is not a, the conservatives say that's a bad idea because we ought to have determinate sentencing. We ought to have the same rules apply to everyone all the time. Because the labor says it's much more of a pragmatic approach to getting evidence from people in return for testimony. It also is in essentially getting a lower uh, sentence and a crime uh, you know, convicted on the basis of the plea of guilty uh, allows the, 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 the prosecution when its hand is weak, when its evidence is not, is not a slam dunk, to, to, con to play a little strategy, a little bit of gamesmanship. Uh, in the United States, plea bargaining is basically accepted, even though it always remains controversial. The exploding prison population, you know, especially for drugs, just like in the United States, more people going to uh, prison for crimes that essentially don't affect people beyond the immediate transaction. People say this has put too many people in prison. It's ruined communities. It's harsh and unduly inappropriate. On that one, the conservatives are, are likely to agree, but they, even they say it's gone too far. We don't have space. Prisons get too crowded. We don't want to raise taxes. Um, so we have to let them out early. So you fill up the prisons, and then they're released early. And that 
kind of defeats the practice. Uh, then there's the issue of privacy. They have something called a super injunction. An injunction is from the courts of equity. You'll know from the reading today, and we'll discuss this future in the future, that uh, prior to the American Revolution and into the 19th century, there were two separate branches of the English courts, the, the common law courts and the courts of equity. And the, what the courts of equity did was to provide what was called an equitable solution, that is, something other than money to get the result that you needed. In other words, if you were suing for money for breach of contract or tort, then you would go to the common law court. But if you wanted to get a court order to, get, to do something, to get the act performed, the contract performed, to stop them from doing the tort, because they keep on doing it, then you went to the equitable courts. Now, both in England and the United States, the, the law and equity has been merged, and the courts have been unified, uh, and that the injunction, which is the same term used in the United States, is a court order, like the injunctions for school buzzing or integrating housing uh, were famous in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when these were first introduced. England has something called a super injunction, which is an injunction where it's kept secret that there's an injunction. Why do they have that? A super injunction is uh, done in cases of privacy. And the rich and the elite have uh, been in battle with Fleet Street, the British tabloids. Is everyone familiar with the British tabloids with their racing headlines and exposing all the hypocrisy and, and bad behavior, not only of the royals, but of almost any celebrity? Uh, the, the English football captain, what we call soccer, John Terry, and then more recently, Ashley Cole, his teammate on Chelsea, uh, were exposed on super injunctions. I don't, how many of you know about this? Any of you? Well, I know about John Terry, but yeah. Ashley Cole. Okay. Well, any, no one else follows this stuff? Um, Steven's not here, our soccer player. Uh, what happened was John Terry was slated to be captain of England in the World Cup this summer, and he's the captain of Chelsea, which until recently was the top team. And uh, he had an affair with a girlfriend of his left back teammate, he's the center back on the defense, uh, uh, and had with, with and and so his he would have been playing right next to this guy Wayne Bridge after since Ashley Cole got injured, and uh, he had had an affair with the girl you know his girlfriend, even while he was supposed to be the model father of three kids. Well, celebrities in England would get these super injunctions, which would ban the press from reporting on it, and. Uh, the super injunction would say it's a secret that they even made the privacy order because how can you keep it a secret? Well, now with Twitter and blogs, they were saying um, they would do these puns like uh, John Terry got a goal away from home. So they said Terry scores away from home. Uh, this was going on Twitter. <laughs> and, and so people figured out what, what was going on and the, the, with the double entendre in the pun. Um, and find, so the judge lifted the super injunction, and he got exposed, and he got demoted as captain of England. Okay, there's all, that's all you want to know about that. But anyway, the super injunction is really controversial. Also, why should the rich be able to get this when the poor don't get it? Why only, why only the rich and the celebrities are able to have these? Well, that's because, presumably, that's because the tabloids are racing around, so-called paparazzi. They, did, they basically killed Lady Di, Diane Spencer, in. Britain, uh, what, 12 years ago was it? 11 years ago? 
uh, following her car, and, and, and the driver, who was drunk, which is not a very good thing, smashed the car, and she died. And there was more grief for her than certainly for Prince Charles, who was uh, cheating on Lady Di. Well, cheating. I mean, he never really was interested in her anyway, but went back to his original girlfriend, Camilla, who he's now married to, I believe. OK, so this gives you a little bit of flavor about the English context. And you can see there are similarities and differences between our two systems. Obviously, our law came from their common law. Uh, and uh, our constitution came from their constitution in that mention is more like the Constitution of England in 1776 than England's constitution is now. That is, King George III is our president, except that it's not an hereditary throne. It's an elected body by the Electoral College. And power is divided with the House of Commons, in this case, our bicameral legislature, the Senate uh, and the House. And the Senate is modeled after the House of Lords. Originally, the representatives do what they do in Germany today, which is representing the states. That was amended 100 years ago to have direct election of senators. But it's a different kind of body. You realize from this healthcare debate that it uh, is meant to check. And the House of Lords also checks the House of Commons. It delays. It can't, it's not strictly speaking a bicameral legislature. The role of the House of Lords is to slow down. The only power that it has uh, as an equal body to stop uh, by not voting in favor would be to extend the electoral term beyond five years. They must have an election in England every five years. can be held sooner if the majority party decides it's tactically advantageous to hold the election sooner so they have a better chance of win because things are getting bad. Uh, usually they don't reduce it much beyond a year anyway because then they won't have been able to say we've done anything in office and usually it takes quite a few years to achieve what you have. Um, Obviously, you, the, the debates in Parliament are much more raucous. I don't know if any of you watched on C-SPAN. They have the uh, debates in Westminster. Have any of you watched that? It's, it, you know, it's, it's the two sides face each other. The backbenchers or the younger uh, less, uh, have served less time. The frontbenchers of the prime minister and, the sh and his cabinet face, or, or hers, facing the shadow cabinet of the majority, the, the minority party. In this case, the Conservatives and the Liberals have a few seats over there. In the middle, the, the Speaker will always, uh, their Speaker is a true Speaker, keeps the uh, gavel in place, says, order, order, because they always do personal attacks. And they don't do what they do in Japan and Korea, which is basically headbutt each other and go nose to nose and push and shove and they get so angry because there's so much name calling going on. But this, it gets really personal. And they ask a lot of questions, and they crack a lot of jokes. And it's, it's, it's a real debate. The only time we have a real debate is at 1 o'clock in the morning on the health care bill, when most people are not really watching, even though it was such important legislation. OK, um, so Parliament obviously passes statutes. Uh, the House of Commons essentially can, if it <coughs> votes to approve a piece of legislation, it's approved if, if the House of Lords says no, then they have to consider it a second time. And quite often, they do amend it because the House of Lords does raise uh, objections. Public opinion reacts when they get scared and hear about all the things the House of Lords says. House of Lords tends to be conservative small c, that is not the conservative party, because uh, 
until two decades ago, it was largely a hereditary body. Then they eliminated hereditary peers. So it, it's mostly life peers. That is, all those people are called sir and lady who are rewarded for their great achievements, and they tend to have more money, and they tend to be more conservative. There's also the law lords, which are the lords of the House of Lords, which until recently was the highest court in Britain. Now with the Supreme Court and a separate building, uh, the Supreme Court now has the highest courts of the land. In terms of organization, uh, we can basically say, you know, here we have the law lords up top in a highly centralized system. Court of Appeal and the High Court for major corporate disputes, money disputes of a, that are very involve a large amount of money, um, major crimes uh, would start in the High Court. So, in this system, it's the same system for the whole country. For most criminal matters and for most uh, money disputes, uh, the county courts for what we would call civil disputes, that is disputes between private citizens, and for criminal matters, it's the magistrate's courts, which is like most states in, in the United States. They have a criminal judges and a criminal court division that's separate. And a civil court, in New York, they're called the Supreme Courts, even though and the highest court in New York State is the Court of Appeal. The highest court in Georgia is the Supreme Court of Georgia. Um, in the United States, we tend to have more specialized courts, courts of admiralty for, for maritime disputes. Uh, family law issues come before uh, family law courts. We have trusts and estates, sometimes called probate courts, dealing with inheritance and trusts that are established to help people. Major difference between England and the United States is both of these courts that are regionally based use lay judges, just as many countries in Europe and around the world do. Uh, that's because you know they have far fewer lawyers in the country, uh, and uh, judges are, are considered more or less like a jury of their peers. In England now, a big dispute is whether the, the uh, Juries that have always been used on magistrates' courts, guaranteed by the uh, 12, 15, uh, what happened 12, 15? Magna Carta, thank you. Um, they've introduced juries into county courts uh, and juries into civil disputes on the high court. That's another big political issue faced uh, in, the, in the British election campaign dealing with the law. Um, why do you have uh, lay people serve as judges along with usually one judge who is a trained lawyer? Well, the idea is that uh, if you don't have juries, and often they don't, they don't have juries as often as we do, it's good to have a peer. That is, not a peer in the sense of a nobility or a peer that's gotten knighted with the title sir or lady, like Lady Thatcher or Sir Winston Churchill etc., who then go retire into the House of Lords. Uh, but a magistrate's court would uh, be 
taking from the community. Originally in the United States, when we had a jury trial, and the Constitution says the right to a jury trial of your peers, the idea was that the, the jury would know you personally. Now that's a grounds for recusal, that is to disqualify you as a member of a jury uh, if you have some biased interest, right? If you know the parties, you can't, you're, you're expected to sympathize with the defendant or maybe hate the defendant, but in any event, not be neutral. But the original concept was 180 degrees different. It was, if you knew this person, then you obviously would know whether they're lying or not. And remember, hundreds of years ago, the techniques for collecting evidence were a lot less sophisticated. There was no fingerprinting, for example. There was no DNA testing. Uh, you'll recall from our reading that torture was used in circumstantial cases where there was no incriminating evidence as a way to uh, confirm the guilt of, of at least one eyewitness when you didn't have two eyewitnesses. And they only abandoned it, that is, in the continent of Europe. And I don't know if they ever abandoned it in the Roman Empire and Roman law. It was abandoned because it would prove torture proved to be unreliable, even though it was so highly regulated and designed to have an innocent person stand by their guns, his or her guns, that is. Uh, you know, you could stand two waterboarding sessions, which is essentially what you got in France, as you recall from our reading. Uh, if you could stand, withstand two waterboarding sessions, that's all you would get. And you know that's all you'd get. And that, of course, is a big difference from the types of torture detention sessions that are used around the world, whether you're a political dissident opposing President Ahmadinejad, the Haj Basij, and the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, or whether you're a suspected terrorist in the United States. Um, so this system is quite different in the sense that they use lay judges. It's much more informal. I would say the magistrate, uh, sorry, the county courts are like small claims courts. Any of you ever? Try to collect a debt in small claims court. I did once. When the guy didn't pay me, I, I sent him $1,500. I think it was what he owed me. He just sent the check after he got the, the notice to show up. He was so rich that his, he could make more money in the time it took him to come down there. But, and maybe he didn't pay because he was busy. But I, I wasn't screwing around. I needed the money. But in ret in retrospect, I probably would have been smarter just to be patient and maybe kept him as, a, as an ally. It would have yeah. been something different in life. Never thought about that now. I guess I really wanted the money at the time. OK. Um, so what else can we say about the, the English court system? Um, the magistrates' courts also view some civil disputes uh, in resolving them, if they have a criminal matter which has a civil ramification, you know, in the United States, if you get prosecuted for murder, you would have a completely separate trial. Britain takes the practice, if the civil dispute is related to the criminal charge, the same courts can deal with the matter and determine payment of monies. And this is also uh, another big issue in, in the British election campaign dealing with legal issues is the question of uh, the prisons, um, it, it's argued that prisons don't work. They cause recidivism. Uh, they, they're sort of academies of crime. People become career criminals. Uh, you put them in a young age without job skills, and they don't get employment experience. They don't get a track record. They're not employable when they get out. So crime is the only way to get by, and they go back 
in crime. Uh, and the conservatives have been arguing that the solution to all of this is to uh, have reparations. That is, to use this linkage with the civil dispute so that, let's say, if you've murdered somebody or if you've stolen something, you know, you've got to provide the money for the loss right then and there. And this is, it's argued by sociologists and criminologists that of all the forms of att attempted rehabilitation, you know, job education or formal education inside the prison or having a mullah or a priest or a minister come into the prison, all those things, they're always anecdotes of success, but on a scientific basis, the one thing that really makes people uh, reform is to make them earn the money to pay back the victim of their crime. And that's the one area where you don't hear that in the United States. And I think the reason we don't hear that is we don't have this connection in the county courts of the civil dispute with the criminal dispute. And I think that would be actually a useful thing, but that's just not the way our states have set things up. You know, if you want to sue somebody after the criminal prosecution, you can, and you can even win in civil dispute even if you've, you didn't succeed in convicting someone uh, in the criminal dispute. So for example, O.J. Simpson, as you may know, uh, was not guilty of uh, murder, but he was liable for unlawful death and had to pay money uh, to <coughs> Nicole Brown Simpson's heirs uh, and to uh, <coughs> Goldman, whatever the family of Goldman, the other kid that was killed because he happened to be there with her at the time. Um, magistrates' uh, courts also deal with divorce and family relations. I'm not exactly sure why that is, because that's also a civil dispute. I think the main idea here is that the county courts are in charge of figuring out what to do with the money, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, juvenile courts are, they don't have separate juvenile courts like we have. They have juvenile proceedings in the magistrates' courts, and these are secret trials. United States, we consider a secret trial to be illegal and unconstitutional because we want to make sure that we have due process of law. In England, where the Constitution is not written, <coughs> except for the European Court of Human Rights and the Convention of Human Rights, which I'll talk about briefly today because it's in the chapter, but which we'll spend a whole <coughs> session discussing, um, the uh, notion is that the Constitution is whatever Parliament says it is, based on tradition, based on what, it's wor what has worked, or based on laws that Parliament has formally passed, <coughs> such as in devolving power uh, away from this original unitary system to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the parliaments that have been established for Wales, Scotland, and now more recently Northern Ireland. Different ways in different areas. It's interesting that this devolution that has taken place over the last 15 years which is a radical change from unitary government to federalism. Federalism is what? It's confusing because what we call the federal government is the opposite of what federalism is. The federal government is our name for the national government, but to federate power is to devolve or decentralize power. A federation is a power that is a, a system of government with shared powers between local government and national government. That's what the United Kingdom has 
Uh, a confederation, like the Articles of Confederation, like the Confederacy of the United States, like the Confederation of Independent States for uh, the former Soviet Union, has a very weak central government. The most of the power is decentralized and requires usually a rule like unanimity or a supermajority of the local governing bodies to have any national authority. Yes? Yeah, um, is it recent? Like, is been... The devolution is only about 10 years old. Yeah. But it's not a federation. Anyone know why? Federation is federalism, which is, says the powers are shared, but they're shared more or less equally ac according to the same rules for all of the subunits. Technically, we don't have a federation, pure federation here either, because we have uh, in Guam, Puerto Rico, uh, and the Native American reservations, local autonomy. That is, they uh, have self-governing parliaments that can come up with totally different sets of rules within their local distribution. Uh, and uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland each have their own forms of limited local autonomy, but it is autonomy. And Scotland, because it was originally a union that merged with England as opposed to territory like Ireland and Wales, which was simply conquered by England, uh, was able to say, we're an equal partner, therefore we'll have more autonomy. And more recently, Wales has gotten more autonomy. And Northern Ireland, uh, with the recent progress, it remains to be seen because it comes and goes since the Good Friday Agreement of the mid-1990s, uh, has been able to stay, create its own autonomous government based on consocial principles of power sharing between the Catholics, where the Irish uh, were there, and the Protestants, who were the Presbyterians who came from Scotland three or four hundred years ago when England colonized uh, Ireland and, and colonized, especially in the north, across from Glasgow to Belfast. Uh, by the way, because of English influence, you know, the major cathedrals in Dublin, which is majority Catholic to the south, these are Protestant cathedrals because the English colonists built large Protestant cathedrals there. Now, the high court, this is the main court systems you know, are not organized on a local basis. And these are all judges who have become judges after decades as barristers. Barristers uh, are the elite minority who finish in the top of their class in their undergraduate legal careers, who also aspire to that position. Instead of having articles with a law firm that is a solicitor's firm to get trained to do legal paperwork, barristers serve as interns at the inns of court. In the old days, they li literally lived in the inns of court in London. Uh, and uh, now they just do internships there and take their exams. And then they take, uh, as lawyers before the high court, any case that's assigned to them by the bench, pro or con. They get paid very, very well. Most of them, I think, get paid to be millionaires. Uh, so they are independent. And they can, I guess, charge the going rate. But if they get hired, they get assigned by the court to represent an indigent that is a poor defendant who can't has, have any money, they do it for free. So it's, it's a bit of a calling. Most of these barristers, then, if, uh, if they get promoted, they get to be barristers at the Court of Appeal. If they get really promoted highly, they get to be barristers at the law lords. 
or they, they take the same case that they took at the, on the lower court and take it all the way up to the top. Um, all of these barristers are very much of the elite. They're very unrepresented. They tend to be certainly, up until recently, males, almost exclusively who went to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, and they either had first class honors in their final exams or at, at least an upper second. You know, in England, they, you, you have a first, second, or third class degree, and that's what they call it. First class degree is like Phi Beta Kappa, you know, top two or three percent on the exams. And in, in Britain, you, you, all of your studies, it varies. In law, usually you take some exams after your first year. It's a three-year BA, uh, so your, your, your exams for your degree basically are based on your, all the classes that you've taken, which are tutorials with a tutor, basically. Having read and written weekly essays, you take these exams at the end of your second year, and it's all or nothing in one week. If you have a bad week, you can end up with a third, which is kind of the bottom 3%. Uh, and you can actually have uh, pass, low pass, or fail. And I knew a friend who was a Rhodes Scholar who failed and didn't do anything, but he still went back to Harvard Law School, became a congressman, uh, and I can tell you about him some other time. Um, you know that in, certainly in these courts, the judges wear a wig as well as a black robe. The barristers wear a wig. They have all this ceremony. It's taken very seriously. <coughs> like in the United States, the courts of appeal and the law lords do not debate issues of fact. Um, in a typical moot court, you don't, issue, you don't argue issues of fact. But for my teaching purposes, there wouldn't be enough roles. And we just have a, a class on moot courts, I guess, if everybody did an appellate court. So we would treat it like the equivalent of a high court hearing. <coughs> Unlike the United States, <coughs> until about 30 years ago, they always had uh, the, used the rule of prece precedent uh, and never would overturn a prior decision. The United States, of course, the Supreme Court of the United States has overturned itself in famous instances like Brown versus the Board of Education overturning Plessy versus Ferguson. The cases involving federalism on the Internet State Commerce Clause was reversed in the 1937 and then re-reversed under the Rehnquist Court. <coughs> Capital punishment was banned for three years and then reintroduced in 1976. <coughs> uh, there have been whittling aways of decision. Uh, it's much, much rare. In Britain, if the law lords rule on a decision, if the courts of appeal rule on a decision, law lords don't even get many cases. Um, there are about 25 law lords in the House of Lords who rule on cases, and they only take a couple of cases occasionally. Also, the law lords has the dual role of privy counsel, which is effectively the Supreme Court for any former English colony using English common law that wants to use the Privy Council as its highest court. So there are lots of the Commonwealth Caribbean and English-speaking Caribbean, all these democracies, some of them relatively poor countries like Trinidad, Tobago, wealthier like Barbados, rich and poor like Jamaica, all of them democracies, however, but some with very high crime rates, all of them with capital punishment. Uh, their highest court is the Privy Council. Many of the uh, English post-colonies in Africa, I don't know them by name, but among the list, Nigeria, Ivory 
not every coast, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Sierra Leone, <coughs> many of them do also use the Privy Council as their de facto Supreme Court. And that's a role that's you know, fostered by the Commonwealth Secretariat, which is a body of former English colonies. Actually, Rwanda and a few other non-English post-colonies are also members of the Commonwealth because they like the, secre the Secretariat's services and so forth. So do each, do each of the nations form their own previous council? No, no, no. It's the law lords in London ruling on cases that come from uh, around the, the world. So do they have, do they have like branches? Like branches of no, it's the same judges. They don't. I mean, there are many English post colonies who have their own Supreme Court. No, I think, I think it's, it, 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 it's considered, you know, these guys are the best, among the best judges in the world, and they are, certainly for English common law. Most of these countries, uh, when they study, when you read law in Nigeria, you have the same case book that they have in London. Uh, they treat the British cases not as technically binding unless it's from the Privy Council, but as enormously influential in the same way that Georgia would be influenced by an argument that this is the law in New York or California. Uh, now, I want to conclude with a discussion of the European Court of Human Rights which we'll spend a whole session on, but is mentioned in the chapter. <clears throat> the, the Human Rights Act of 1999 incorporated the law of the European Convention of Human Rights into British law and made it actionable in British courts. It's similar to the United States with our doctrine of non-self-executing treaties. Technically, the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights are not binding in England, but they've incorporated the rules to make sure that essentially England complies indirectly but not directly. So England has a superbly good record, one of the very best records, and it's maybe paradoxical compared to countries like Italy and France where the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights are directly binding on England and France, I'm sorry, on France and Italy, and they just don't obey it. Um, and this is also another big issue in this current election campaign because obviously with the issue of terrorism, uh, de detention rights of terrorist suspects are protected much more vigorously in the European Court of Human Rights and interpreting the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, effectively, the English uh, Human Rights Act is a bill of rights just like our first 10 amendments were appended to our constitution, except that this is the first written constitution that England has ever had. And when they established, they abolished the, the commission, which was a reviewing body uh, that existed to uh, consider cases before they went to the European Court of Human Rights for the first 50 years of his, of his 45 years of his existence, uh, Britain was not bound by the European Court of Human Rights. But since 1998 and the following year with the enactment of enabling legislation, uh, Britain now has a written constitution in effect, the European Convention on Human Rights, although technically it's done through English law through acts of parliament. The other thing that's a little bit complicated is even with the recent devolution of power to Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, uh, English law has only been practiced in Wales and England. 
Scotland has had its own Scots law, which is based on Roman law, the last 400 years because it was considered a unified body that merged with England and kept its legal system intact. And Northern Ireland, uh, I believe, uses co common law but doesn't use English common law. Uh, in any event, uh, what we have then is a system where Britain now has a written constitution as far as human rights is concerned, but it's implemented through enabling legislation. Uh, so you can say technically speaking, the European Convention of Human Rights is an important document that influences in, in English common law indirectly, and it's technically not really a, the written constitution of England as far as human rights are concerned. Technically, England still doesn't have a written constitution. Now, there's lots of proposals in this current election campaign in England to have more written constitutional elements or even to have a written constitution. Next week, I'm going to Strasbourg, where the European Court of Human Rights is located, as well as the Council of Europe and the European Parliament. So you will have Bonnie Raleigh again as your teacher teaching the assignments for those two days. Um, and she will record those sessions. I'm sure she won't forget this time. Um, and uh, I will have lots of stories to tell you about Strasbourg and the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, and I hope you have a good week. And I'll see you a week from next Monday. Yeah, I do speak French. Yeah.